Welcome to the Man on Second podcast on Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Joe Fersaro, joined as always with co-host and producer Dave D'Agostino. Our mission on the channels, as always, is to raise the baseball IQs of our audience. We will do so today with our very special guest, uh, former Miami Marlins uh, front office executive Dan Nofsinger. Dan's uh, Ivy League grad, went to Harvard, currently is an attorney. Uh, he wore many hats in the, in the sport. We're going we're gonna to dive into a lot of what um, Dan did and get his thoughts about the winter meetings and more. But before we get to Dan, let's uh, um, have Dave jump in with some announcements. Yeah, I just want to say it's about time. We're on episode number 377. About time we had another fellow upstate New Yorker on the on the show, right 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 in that Schenectady zip code. So Dan, uh, th- thanks for thanks for being a monumental guest for us. Happy to be here with another former Rotterdam Square Mall denizen. That's right, Route Twenty, Crossgates, Rotterdam Square. We, we'll talk it all, Joe. That's what the audience wants to hear about, I'm sure. But uh, sixty thousand subscribers, you guys know what to do after the show. We battle the analytics of the podcast world, just like we do in baseball. Uh, make sure you give Joe five stars, write some great comments so we can keep climbing the charts on the iHeartRadio podcast world. Uh, to our sponsor, Blackout Coffee, uh, Be Awake Not Woke is their slogan. At checkout, this is Coffee on Joe, so Joe on Joe right here. Uh, it's, it's Joe, J-O-E, all caps with the letter F, so Joe F, number 20. Gets you 20% on checkout. You can buy unlimited coffee at that price. Pass it out for Christmas and your holiday gifts. And speaking of holiday gifts, Ted Kubiak, our, probably our most faithful listener, three-time world champion with the Oakland A's, very first guest on our network way back when. Uh, he's got a great book called Old School Baseball. It's great stocking stuffer for a baseball lover in your family. It's, it's baseball through his lens, what's happened to our national pastime. He also has a wonderful fielding manual. It's on my shelf as well. I wish I had it as a professional ball player. Uh, it's the most comprehensive approach to fielding the baseball that I've seen. Nothing like you see on YouTube. Uh, Ted, as Jim Cott calls him, he used to stand in, in uh, BP to watch Ted field ground balls called the Mr. Smooth. So um, so with that, Joe, bring it back to you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Dave. And I'm excited to catch up with, with Dan Knopfsinger. I go way back to 2004 when Dan was a young intern coming right out of Harvard and uh, interned with the then Florida Marlins. Uh, and he's, like I said, he wore many hats, uh, one of the really, you know, bright minds. Uh, you know, I think he's probably the, the Marlins' first ever uh, – you know, uh, analytics uh, department. I think it was a one-man band for for a while. Uh, jumped around, did a, a number of things. He's been in uh, player development. He's negotiated contracts. He's uh, been part of scouting, uh, part of the daily operations on the minor league level. Uh, so many things to mention there. Uh, kind of confusing to mention them all. So I'll have Dan Knopfler saying, Dan, uh, welcome to the show, buddy, and, and catch people up to what you're doing now and uh, just a brief, you know, overview of your, your – uh, history in baseball. Sure. Thanks for that, Joe. Um, that's right. I came in as an intern. Uh, it was for six weeks for arbitration season. I ended up turning it into 12 plus years uh, across several departments, like you said, the last few 
as director of baseball operations and then briefly director of analytics, uh, which previously was, was something I'd kind of done on the on the side uh, as we did not have a, a huge department uh, for that like they do now. Uh, and then uh, after leaving baseball, I did do one offseason. I'd always done arbitration with the Marlins. Uh, I did one offseason consulting with uh, on the dark side with player agency. That was a very interesting uh, perspective. And then uh, the next year, I decided to start law school, uh, finished that up two years ago, and uh, just started my third year practicing law as a corporate attorney uh, here outside of Orlando. Oh, great, great. Uh, you could fill people in if you want to give a plug for your, your law firm or, you know, kind of um, what's going on there. Or Oh, sure. Yeah, it's a, a firm called LOCI, P-L-L-C. Uh, a smaller firm in downtown Orlando, but we uh, we have some big clients uh, do deals of uh, all sizes. And in yeah, fact, it, go we ahead. have a uh, we have a former AAA player. Um, I wasn't able to touch base with him to to allow me to uh, discuss uh, release his name and discuss what he's got going on. Um, but he's working on a, a device that attaches uh, to a bat, one of those uh, performance devices. So a little little baseball crossover with my current work. Okay, well, once that's all clear, we may get you guys back on the show sure. <laughs> and break down the new technology. We're always cutting edge here on our podcast network. Uh, Dan, this is always, I always enjoyed this time of year as a beat writer. Uh, the winter meetings were always fun to cover. We would catch up there as well. You'd be in the war rooms there, you know, and all, all the activity going on. And I, I always thought that, you know, the deals... I always thought baseball was better off when big deals came down to winter meetings for a number of reasons. I mean, the winter meetings essentially are an infomercial for baseball and a real chance for the sport to kind of steal some headlines at the peak of football season and the start of the NBA and NHL and so forth. And and it's, you know, there's we've had years where there's a lot of activity, years of, you know, hardly anything. This year's uh, meetings, I, for one, I guess they're a day shorter. They, they're wrapping up on Wednesday instead of Thursday, but um, they're in Nashville. But I thought it, you know, it was it was the Otani meetings, but really only rumors with Otani, and Otani didn't even want to hear rumors, so that kind of you know took the air out of the balloon a bit. But at least the New York Yankees came to the rescue, and they traded for Juan Soto yesterday, part of the meetings, and then we'll give the Diamondbacks credit, and I guess. Craig Kimbrell earlier in the week uh, may have gone to Baltimore as well. But, you know, the Diamondbacks signing Eduardo Rodriguez as a free agent. So I just kind of want to get your your kind of thoughts as someone who's who's been in there in the rooms when big trades come down. What, from a trade dynamic, what do you think that Yankees and Padres war rooms might have looked like in the last couple of days, knowing that Juan Soto, a huge name, uh, is on the table and put and perhaps and imminently on the move. Sure. I mean, the winter meetings were always one of my favorite times of the year. Probably my three favorite weeks of the year were the winter meetings, uh, the draft, and the last week of spring training when we'd bring in all of our pro scouts. It was the one time that, uh, that my department was all together when I was, when I was in that department. Uh, but the winter meetings is the one time when the whole industry gets together and uh, a lot of potential you, Things face-to-face can get done um, a lot faster. Uh, I imagine the war room probably looks a little different than, uh, than when I was there. We did a lot on, a, on, a, on an easel, you know, handwritten one or two. I wouldn't be surprised if there were a couple clubs that had like a CNN kind of digital <laughs> screens where you could drag guys back and forth and, 
and whatnot. But uh, it's a big, it's a big suite. Um, you know, hopefully enough seating for everybody there. One of the big attractions is a well-stocked snack bar. Uh, so probably a week when you gain a couple pounds, uh, particularly since there were times when I literally did not leave that room for the entire day. When I was the director of baseball ops, I had a uh, the bedroom right off of the main room. So I'd have to open it in the morning and let everybody in. And there was at least one day I did not move more than that 15 foot radius. You think you're going to catch up with people. Um, you know, you get emails from job seekers and, and, and you want to help out. And, but there's just, there's just too much going on because you're trying to consider every possibility that's out there, everything that's, that's going to work for you. And you're, you know, putting everything up on the, getting ideas from everywhere. You're, you're thinking about the rule five drafts coming up, making sure your roster's set up and uh, there's, there's just so much going on. Yeah. What, when it gets to when that buzz, cause you were there when, when Miguel Cabrera got traded and Dontra Willis and then, and then 11, when the Marlins were bringing in Jose Reyes and Heath Bell and, you know, and Mark Burley, what, what kind of buzz happens when the, the magnitude of a Juan Soto trade, like, Hey, this is more than just floating an idea. This is possible. And everything just kind of ramps up. What is what is that rush like from a front office's perspective? I know as a reporter, when you get a tip on that, oh man, hey, I got this big story coming. And you know within seconds the whole, you know, room's gonna be talking about it. Uh what's that like when you when you sense that like a soto is about to be moved? Uh, it's definitely a shift in in focus. A lot of the times some of your more well-connected people are down in the lobby. Uh, work in the lobby, trying to get the pulse of the meetings, figure out what's what's next. But if when you're zeroed in on a deal like that, everybody's locked in the room and and trying to do their part. And the and uh, the Padres, for example, I'm sure we're watching a lot of video on the Yankees prospects that they were discussing. So the people that were less familiar with uh, the Drew Thorpe's of the world, um, you know, got a chance to to watch him uh, on video, for example, and. Another difference about the way it is all the agents are there. Uh, so you have the chance to have the sit down one on one with the agent. And in fact, there's probably times when you're trying to hide um, what's going on. You might not even meet in the in the suite with the agent because you don't want everybody else to know exactly what's going on. Yeah, oh, it's it's fascinating. And then and then when it comes to, you know, comes to fruition, you know, then you then you just see the, the buzz it, it creates. How about from the free agent standpoint, like you say, when you're dealing with an agent compared to the team, you know, for, with another team? Yeah, so the, the agents definitely have their own perspective and their own goals and they don't want to show too much of their hands and uh you're trying to pick up on who else has interest and what sort of bids might be. You don't want to be bidding against yourself, but you know, you don't know. You can't, you can't call up your, your rival team and say, Hey, how much did you offer this guy? So um, it's, there's always a dance that you do because we actually studied this one off season. And that was the teams that jumped on guys early uh, as in before the winter meetings or, or, or during did not get as much bang for their buck as the teams uh, that waited. And and typically for payroll reasons, we were the ones waiting into the next year, into the new year, uh, kind of with a net to see who was, who was still out there. Um, so you don't, you don't want to move too fast, but, but sometimes you also don't want to be left holding the bag. And what, what's kind of your thoughts just overall of the meetings themselves? Are you, you know, to me, I, I again, I, I think that baseball 
should really try to encourage and and the sport itself. That means you got to get the players on board too to make the meetings really an event that people have to see. Because in recent years, for example, you know MLB Network has their studio there. They they got everyone set up. People could go on stage. They bring in the managers, the general managers. If a big trade comes down, so so forth. You know they they handle it. ESPN used to do the same thing. But the meetings got to not be as newsy in recent years because they didn't feel the urgency to get anything done. Because, and I get it, you, if you got more time, you don't rush anything. So they stopped doing that. And, and a number of news outlets stopped sending people for the full week or, or deprioritized it because, you know, you can make the same trade a week later. But I honestly think, you know, this close to the holidays, like, let's put it this way. I'm sure MLB.com, my former company, is very happy that the Soto trade is is pretty much official because what's going to happen between now and the end of the month? There's going to be a lot of Juan Soto merchandise with Yankee gear uh, going off the shelves that are going to be under you know under Christmas trees and 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 during the holiday season, a lot of exchanging of of Juan Soto jerseys. So why not prioritize to get the deals done? And then it clears kind of January up more to kind of prepare your roster for, you know, handle arbitration for, you know, getting ready for spring training to start in February. Yeah, I'd love to see the the winter meetings become a, a bigger deal. Same thing with the with the draft. And maybe that's what went into trying to shorten it by a day. And I think it's always interesting when some players come and that that kind of changes the the atmosphere when when players are in town or or on TV and promoting themselves. And that's another thing about dealing with an agent. Um, uh, I would always feel better if, particularly a player we didn't know that well, if we could actually meet them, talk to them face to face, see if they actually had interest in joining our club, if they knew much about our club, our coaching staff, et cetera, or if we were just being used as kind of a stalking horse bidder to help get them get a bigger deal at a, at a different destination. Um, but in terms of the timing, you know, nobody wants to get a bad deal. So I think there's a lot of times when people want to wait it out. Um, but obviously everybody works better when there's uh, a little sense of urgency. I was up a little late last night working on a filing that we had to get in with the court uh, before midnight, for example. Um, and in the case of Soto, it made a lot of sense to me because that's a big percentage of your payroll for anybody, even even the Yankees. And that's something that you want to you, you wanna know moving forward before the way you might be able to spend those dollars, the other people you might be allocating those to before those people are off the market too. So it made a lot of sense to me that that, that, that deal uh, got done maybe a little earlier in the off season than, uh, than some others. Yeah. I, I thought that was a big win for the Yankees, for the sport of baseball, um, you know, for the reasons I just expressed. Um, Dave, jump in. I'm, I'm interested, Dan, you, you started you know, you were a one man crew with the analytics department with the Marlins when you started and you, you went right from like, as you said, intern to, to that role, where, where did you start? How did you determine uh, what was important to the organization? And I'm assuming that kind of set up your communication pattern with how you were going to disseminate the information. How, how did, how did you morph that department? Well, I, I don't even know if I'd call it a, a department to, to start. Um, you know, when, I joined, when I joined the club, uh, the Monster just won the World Series um, with a heavy scouting focus, uh, five pitchers that were drafted out of high school, I think. Um, 
something you don't want to see too often. So they, they, didn't, they didn't, there wasn't an urgent need for that, um, but that perspective. Um, it was something I, I tried to kind of mix in slowly, um, raise awareness, you know, and uh, for, for one thing, even if you're the most adamant anti-analytics person, uh, at some point you should want to know what your rivals are valuing uh, so that when they try and pluck out your prospects, which you might not even like, um, you should at least try to extract maximum value from them, knowing that that's someone that they look favorably upon. Absolutely, absolutely. But in terms of the the communication, I'll tell you, I was I was thinking about this leading up. Um, shifting was was something that I was trying to push for when I was director of baseball ops, and that's something that, in hindsight, I could have done a better job. Uh, communicating with. I remember there was a coach I was trying to meet up with during spring training to discuss it. And I ended up just kind of dropping a packet of, of color-coded charts on his uh, on his chair in his locker room. And that was not not the best way to try to get him on board because the the, the messaging um, is is such a huge part of it. And I remember um, John Maley was our was our hitting coordinator for a long time. He's held a number of roles. Uh, he's been a hitting coach, just a hitting coach in the, in the big leagues. And uh, I had a good relationship with him, and sometimes he would come to me with about with, with some statistics about a player, you know, their uh, their two strike approach, that sort of thing. And I, I would never communicate that directly to the player. Be like, hey, you're hitting, you know, a buck fifty with 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 two strikes, and you're not hitting home runs either. Let's let's shorten it up a little bit. I would communicate that to to John, and he would take that to the to the players. And I and I think that's that's the best way to go about it because I imagine there's some of these clubs, and um, I, I think we've kind of seen. Judge has been in the news talking about that a little bit for the way the Yankees bring the data to their players. You, you, there can definitely be information overload um, for for some of these guys, and some guys love it. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, Jason Veritek, uh, apparently for the advanced scouting reports, he would want 50-plus page reports on, uh, on, on the other team, whereas there's some catchers, uh, Miguel Olivo comes to mind for the Marlins, that, that, that wanted almost nothing. And they were they were gonna they were gonna call their game I guess from the gut and uh, they, they were gonna do their own thing so it it uh, it comes down to the player you know you want them to be as fully equipped uh, as possible without without totally overloading them yeah I love that approach what, what would you in now now analytics departments have I think in some cases more analytics uh, people than there do maybe baseball scouts or it's getting more even but if you were to come back into a, a a role today in any of the roles you you served, um, what role would analytics play in, in a lot of your decisions today? How would you balance that? Sure. I, uh, so Dan Jennings was my boss for almost my entire time with the, with the Marlins. Um, uh, very old school scout. He was the Tampa Bay Rays original scouting director. You guys have had him on here. You're, you're oh yeah. yeah. Uh, times. Um, but uh, it, it's funny when I was in, when I was in college, I, I read everything I could baseball, America, baseball prospectus, uh, everything that was out there, which is much less than it is now with, with, uh, with all the blogs and, and, and whatnot. But um, uh, baseball America was kind of playing up the uh, scouts versus stats back in the time. And they had a, um, a head to head kind of not a debate, but, Representing the the scouting side was Dan Jennings, and on the other side was Paul DePodesta, who was kind of my role model. Um, there was an article in the school paper when I w- was a freshman that focused on Paul DePodesta. Michael Hill was also mentioned. David David Force, Peter Woodfork, um, some other guys. But Paul DePodesta uh, 
was he was the assistant GM of the A's. For those who don't know, he was the uh, inspiration for Jonah Hill's character in Moneyball. Um, not directly based on him because he Paul DiBiase asked not to use his name, so he's kind of an amalgamation as, as of, of characters, and they made him go to Yale for some reason. But um, in any case. <laughs> So here, here's, here's the guy that, that had kind of set me down this path, seeing that he had been successful without playing baseball in college um, up against Dan Jennings. And then about two years later, here I am working for, for the scouting guy. So that, that was a wonderful relationship I had with him. I think we really learned from each other. And my long way going about this is that uh, uh, DJ eventually came around to the Theo Epstein perspective, which was you got you to gotta look at it through both lenses. Um, and, and to me, it also matters, you know, what's the level of risk we're taking here? Uh, if, it's, if it's a waiver claim, you know, uh, one scout's gut um, has definitely served us well. You, you know, we did great in the Rule 5 and the, the Minor League Rule 5. Uh, Dan Uglo was, was a Major League Rule 5 guy. And we almost followed it up that, that next year, Joe. I don't know if you remember this, uh, with Josh, Josh Hamilton. Hamilton. Yeah. We yeah. were laying in the weeds on Josh Hamilton. He had just come off a of suspension. He was in short season Hudson Valley. And we picked about sixth in the Rule 5 that year. And I want to say the Cubs called us up and said, hey, do you guys want to move up to third? Sometimes, you know, a club will pay $20,000 or something to move up a spot. It's not quite like the NFL draft. But those trades do, do happen. And we said, no, nobody's going nobody's gonna to pluck our guy. And uh, and lo and behold, the Reds the Reds made the move and and got him. So that would have been uh, an amazing an amazing back to back Rule Five year. Uh, the point being that that level of risk, you know, going down to A ball. Obviously, there's nothing analytically that's going to say yes. Let's take this guy that that didn't even hit that great in, in low A and think that he's going to be able to hit in the majors. Uh, you know, whereas you're looking at. Uh, uh, signing Juan Soto long-term, let's say, you, you want all the stars to align uh, on, you know, when we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars there. So it's, so it's something of a sliding scale um, for me in terms of wanting everything to, to line up. Yeah, I love it. I, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit of a kind of that duality, former professional player. I have an advanced degree in analytics from an Ivy League school. So I, I happen to think the two don't have to be mutually exclusive, like you're saying here. For our audience, does it have to be an either or? Does it have to be a battle? Or in, in the best world, is it a merger of two, two schools of thought? No, I, I, it's, it's great when it, when it comes together um, in terms of what, what, can we, what can we do differently um, to get this guy to where we think he can be. Or um, you know, these days with the advent of video, um, I remember, I remember talking to DJ about a catcher who had uh, surprisingly good uh, frame, framing numbers. Normally bigger guys, this was like a six foot four catcher. Um, normally bigger guys have, have a little trouble, particularly with, with the lower pitch, bringing it up and showing it to the umpire. And DJ was a little skeptical that this guy could do it. And then uh, after looking at some video, he, he quickly came around on it. And that's been a major change in this game is, is how quickly you can – pull up the things that you, that you want to see something like that. No, that's some good, really good stuff, Dan. And, and it, and it raises it to where I want to go to where you, you obviously have a analytics mind, but you also have a baseball mind, a baseball perspective, more of the traditional, you know, the people who wear the cleats point of view. Um, 
I heard an interview with Farhan Zaidi uh, at, the, at the winter meetings where he basically said, and this kind of startled me, and I sent a little clip around to, to the guys on our podcast network, Dave, in, you know, Dave included, but what kind of gave me a bad rub was he was almost dismissing the baseball people, Jay, basically saying that the, the way it works is if all the ideas in the room, meaning the analytics room, are just conveyed and passed along to the players without it being kind of a mutual perspective of, you know, maybe the manager has a different point of view of how they want to use the information. It was almost like we need somebody to just run the information. It's not our, it's not a flaw in our logic. It's if it doesn't work out, it's the manager didn't convey it properly or the coaches didn't. So just kind of where do you see that that balance or it does it have to be one or the other? I I, I think you're talking a little bit about buy-in, which which is very important. Um, I'll give you an example. Something that had been completely only one way in baseball before I started was uh, the pitcher always hit ninth. And a few years later, there were a couple clubs that experimented with hitting the pitcher eighth. Uh, because if you run the numbers as a hypothetical exercise, because nobody had actually done it at that point, um, hypothetically, that ninth hitter is what some people call the second leadoff man. You get a couple more chances for your second and third batters with, with runners on base, and you can squeeze out another run or two, um, which, you know, if you figure that, uh, buying a win in the free agent market is close to $10 million now, and, Roughly one win is 10 runs. Each run you squeeze out is about a million dollars. So, you know, there's a lot of value in the margins. Um, but some of these clubs wanted to do it. There's a number of players who would not be very happy hitting ninth behind the pitcher. And if that player starts pouting and is less productive, then you've just, you know, completely offset whatever advantage that you thought you were going to have. Um, I want to say it was Jason Kendall with the Brewers. Um, was was totally on board with it. I think he was a leadoff hitter when he was with the with the Pirates. Um, so that was an example of, of a success. Um, uh, but even then, I want to say that they estimated it was going to save them twenty five runs or something, and that was probably just just based on a, a simulation of what the number eight versus nine hole was going to do. Um, but you're going to pinch hit for your for your pitcher. Well, this is back before we had the DH everywhere. Um, so realistically, that was not exactly how it was going to play out. Um, I'll give you another example. I remember the Giants signed uh, Edgar Renneria after a down year. And they said, ah, we looked into it and uh, he had a better second half than first half. So we think he's going to be fine. And that was one of those things that, as it turns out, second half, first half is maybe 52-48. So there's a lot of club, a lot of teams have been fooled by guys who had uh, a good half and reading too much into that. So, you know, the question is how, how are we going to balance all of this? And if they knew, Oh, maybe if we only look at this 52, 48, maybe we shouldn't be quite as optimistic that he's going to have such a good year. No, great, great, great points. And if memory serves, I think you, you uh, got Dontro Willis hitting outside of ninth one in a game or two. Was it your uh, input? 
I don't know. I don't know if I can uh, if I can take credit for uh, for that one. But you know, there were some days when Dontrell could have hit third. So <laughs> Dontrell might be an easier example because he was such a good hitting pitcher. Yeah, my, uh, one one of my friends, um, uh, one of his one of my one of his favorite stories of my times with the Marlins is Dontrell watching himself hitting the couple home runs he hit one year on a loop to get himself amped up to, uh, to go play <laughs> sitting, sitting in the video, just sitting in the video room, just, just watching his home runs. On loop. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, Dan, how, how has analytics changed even in the few years you've not been in the game right now? Is it more well, I, of it? Is it more, you know, meaning departments are certainly are bigger. Uh, I know there's analysts, you know, breaking down, you might have three guys breaking down pickoff moves. You know the you know the things like that. You know, so kind of take uh, people through where where it is in your eyes. Oh, I mean, I, I don't even know that I'm completely up to speed. There's so much that goes on behind closed doors. But uh, Dave was talking about how these departments have expanded um, exponentially to the point where some are larger than than the scouting departments, and some of these jobs are so specialized. I mean, I, I know that the Dodgers have a whole sports science department that people look into nutrition and sleep um, and and you know everything you can think of and now that there's more track men in the minor leagues I think there are I think there's uh, clubs that are just minor league analysts uh, probably amateur amateur to that point um, and some of the qual- once in a while I'll see one of these jobs posted and the, these are PhD level uh, positions that are doing out- outrageous amounts of modeling um I, I had one interview with another team uh when i was with the marlins i don't know if you knew this job interviewed to be the farm director for the astros in the 2012 offseason and uh uh so I, I go up to their front office meet with a number of people and i think they called it like the nerd cave or something like that where their where their analytics team was based and they had um you guys ever watched the big bang theory Oh, yeah. um, you know how there'd always be some some really obscure formulas on the whiteboard, um, <laughs> which, which yeah. I found out were, those were actually real formulas, real you know some some famous equations and theories and such because they had like a physics consultant on the t- on the show that would go write those in the background. But it was basically like that um, on the whiteboard outside of uh, the nerd cave. Um, these really theoretical things. I mean, uh, you know, spin rate probably getting into getting into uh, drag and, and, and all sorts of stuff that's, that's probably beyond me. I, I hope that I could at least, you know, converse with them. Um, but it's, it's really become some, some next level stuff. Yeah. What are some of the basic stuff? I mean, that's to me, I mean, I, you know, I remember back and I think it was 15, 2015 when MLB.com launched StatCast, And, mm-hmm. you know, we ha- we've had Mike Petriello who does an amazing job. We've had him on the show. And I, I really love the work Mike does. And it just kind of opened my eyes to to that end of it. Uh, obviously, at the time when the Marlins having Stanton hitting the ball at 120 miles an hour when no one else was hitting it over 110, it was interesting to measure that way. Or when Jose Fernandez was, his slider was just so much better than everybody in the sport. And you could, you know, you could measure it with data. There was, you know, you could see all that. But I, I still try to, and I, I I try to stay as connected to and appreciative of it, of the, of the numbers, but I still, I think we all do. We just kind of have our, our favorite numbers, you know, like uh, 
at the end of the day, weighted runs created plus. I'll look at that a little bit more heavily. I look at slugging heavily. You know, it's it's like, what do you think are the most basic that for people that are getting into the analytics that where do you think they should kind of focus? Where's the foundation of it? Wow, that's a, that's a very loaded question there, Joe. But um, <laughs> but you're right. A lot of the times we're just we're measuring things that we already know, uh, just perhaps to a certain extent. I'll give you an example. Uh, spring training circa 2014, we we get we get TrackMan installed in our spring training complex in Jupiter, and our video guy Dan Padrica is very excited about this. He's an area scout with the Chicago White Sox now. Very excited about this. He sends out a report afterwards that said. The hardest hit ball of the game was Mike Morse's home run. And we're going, yeah, he put it on the he put it on top of the clubhouse. We, we know that was the hardest hit ball. Tell us something we don't know. Uh, but um, I'd say uh, pitchers, probably an uh, easier way to measure. We're looking at we're looking at strikeouts, walks, ground ball, fly ball, and and that that'll tell you a lot, a lot of a pitcher. And now that said, it's a little more complicated than that because. Uh, there are some guys who are essentially different people when you get a runner on on first or second base. You know, Mark Burley is a guy who always outperformed uh, his his peripheral numbers because he was phenomenal. He was a gold glover, and you couldn't steal a base off this guy. He picked off more people than he let steal. So that's that's the kind of guy that's gonna um, that's gonna outperform somebody with similar similar peripheral numbers. Uh, whereas there's some guys. Uh, Javier Vasquez was always um, a favorite of mine. He always had great strikeout numbers everywhere he went. I was really happy when we got him with the Marlins. Uh, but he was a guy, I'm going off memory and probably rounding a little bit here, who overall had about a four-to-one strikeout-to-walk ratio. Get a runner on runner on first or second is more like two-to-one. His fastball command from the stretch just wasn't quite the same. So he was a guy that always seemed to slightly underperform his numbers to the point where he was, I think, a popular breakout candidate uh, for a lot of people just looking at his his surface level stats. And he had a great career, don't get me wrong. Um, but I think that that always held him back um, a little bit. So uh, to tie back to the winter meetings, I remember there was one year, we had a guy named uh, Archimedes Caminero, was oh, yeah. in short season A-ball and uh, threw real hard, struck out a bunch of guys, eventually made the majors. And there was a question of, do we do we protect this guy? in the rule five draft and because uh, he had real hard and he had big strikeout numbers, but he was still so raw. He couldn't hold runners whatsoever. And we said, even if somebody takes him, they're going to see that in spring training and no major league manager is going to say, I'm, I'm going to stick this guy in my bullpen when this is a basic thing that, that he can't do. So um, that, as I recall, ended up being the reason that we kept him off an extra year and, and kept him in the organization. But that's sort of the, that's sort of the big picture, um, you know, try to take in all, all aspects, um, at least on the, on the pitching side. No, that, this is some really good stuff. And I know, you know, some of our listeners and I, and we all kind of, if, depends how much time you spend on social media. Now I'm retired. I spend even more when I probably should spend less. Um, but you, you see that people will, they will know some of the basics of fan graphs or some of the basics of, of uh, StatCast. And those and they're analytics experts, and then they're all in on analytics, and they're all yet they're not taking into consideration, like you noted, how does the pitcher do out of the stretch? You know, how does he? You know, what is how does everything react? So 
uh, I think this is very enlightening for our listeners to to pick up on these points about, and it's the beauty and why I love talking to, to Dan and baseball people, um, because that's it's never as black and white as you think. There's always variables. There's always things that your eyes have to pay attention to as well. Dave, jump in. No, I, I was going to compliment Dan on the way he uses analytics as he's talking with us uh, to piggyback what you said. I hope our audience is picking up that analytics is a language, uh, like Spanish, French, Italian. It's a language. It's words. Um, it's conversation. It's not an absolute number. And I think that's where the that's where the battle happens between either or. And, and the way Dan's describing, I can see why he was so successful in implementing that uh, with the club that he was with and using it now and then even further explaining it to our audience. So um, I hope our audience is picking up on, on that fact. But uh, Dan, I saw something uh, a couple of days back. I don't know if you caught it at all, but uh, Brian Kenny, who's a big, you know, he's a big analytics uh, mm-hmm. guy with, with baseball tonight. Uh, one of our co-hosts, Jim Cott, used to be with him. Um, he had Ted Simmons on, uh, a Hall of Famer, former switch hitting catcher. Um, Ted Simmons came up with an interesting theory foreshadowing the use of the pitcher where he said that we're headed down a road now. He didn't say it as negative. He said it as a positive. Headed down a road now where uh, we're going to see the three-inning pitcher in quotes where, you know, air quotes on an audio show, where a guy's going to go, we're going to employ our pitcher to go one time through the lineup, stop, and then start another pitcher in that regard. And he, he spoke about the positives of baseball moving in that direction and analytics being the driving force behind that. Um, I don't know if you saw that or not, but uh, I mean, in, in looking at analytics, where it started, where it came, and, and as it pertains to starting pitcher, can you can you see that happening? It's certainly possible. Um, I had not seen that. Ted Sims is a very interesting guy, very smart guy. Um, Joe, I maybe remember when, but Ted Simmons uh, interviewed for our managerial job at yeah. one point. Yeah, and, and I, I met him several years ago. Not to interrupt. When he was scouting with the Cardinals, I had very good conversations in the press box with him and came away with that. And this was you know, a couple of years before he got inducted. But continue your thought. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like he had a reputation as a very cerebral guy. And um, uh, I thought that he was going to hit it off with our owner, Jeffrey Loria, because he's a huge art guy. Jeffrey Loria, of course, made his fortune in art dealing. Um, so I, I thought he was the dark horse candidate for that job. I don't remember which job it was and who it, who it ended up going to. Um, uh, but I'm not surprised that he was the one that, that said that. And, uh, statistically your starting pitcher is by far, uh, the most successful, uh, the first time through the lineup. And, you know, we, we talked about later on in my career, trying to limit the number of times that somebody was out the fourth or even the third, if it's your average starting pitcher. And when I was out scouting, um, possible starting pitchers in the minors, I'm thinking to myself, do I feel okay if this right-handed pitcher is facing Freddie Freeman uh, the third time through the lineup in the, in the sixth or seventh inning? Do I have a good feeling about that? And the answer was usually no, um, but he's, he's, he's a great hitter. But um, so I wouldn't be totally surprised if, if we went more that way. Now that said, uh, sometimes spring training, you see, you see scores like nine to six, um, especially at the beginning when everybody pitches one inning, the more pitchers you throw in a game, the more likely it is you're going to find one guy who just doesn't have it that day and, and it's going to get shelved. Um, so I, I definitely never want to see nine pitchers each pitching an inning, but, but one time through could hypothetically be um, effective. I mean, you'd kind of have to overhaul 
the way that guys are are trained coming up through the minors uh, to pitch, you know, every five or six days uh, because you'd have to adjust all of uh, all of the workloads and whatnot. But sure. I mean, one of the one of the big changes in, in terms of comparing guys from this era to previously, we talked about the low batting averages across across baseball. One of those reasons is. Uh, guys don't get to see the same pitcher the third or fourth time when the when the advantage finally shifts in their favor. Um, even a guy like Sandy Koufax, I want, we didn't quite have the same kind of splits back then, but I want to say that in the ninth inning, he had close to a four and a half ERA off the top of my head. Um, you know, everybody gets tired. There's very few guys that can, you know, that can uh, retain their initial velocity at the same time. And there's, there's actually a mathematical concept called Simpson's Paradox, where you could be looking at two guys and uh, let's say one's an, an older player, one more recent player, the uh, the more recent player could actually have better splits first time through the lineup, second time through the lineup, third time through the lineup versus the older player. But the older player might have the better overall line uh, just because of what share of that did come against the third and the fourth uh, time through the lineup. I don't know if I explained that great. It's probably a better and easier example in uh, in basketball. You can have two players. One could shoot better percentage of two pointers and a better percentage of three pointers. Uh, but the other player might have the better overall shooting percentage, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but is possible if the proportions are, are skewed the right way. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. You know, th- this topic, and I, and I did hear that, um, that um, Jim Cott interviewed Dave, and I, I found it interesting. It reminded me of of something I, I've had discussions with, with probably with DJ in, in the past, uh, uh, Dan as well. Where okay, you have three, you you got three starters, right? You got three guys. Nothing's taking these three guys out. They're going every five days, and I'm hoping to get six, seven innings, you know, from these guys. But okay, now I got my I got my fourth, fifth, and sixth starters. Basically, are all kind of the same guy. But none is super great. One day you might be good for four. Um, so I always thought, why not do the spring training piggyback type thing, or at least implement that? Maybe with your fifth starter. Maybe your your fifth starter is, and your sixth starter are, you know, they they do a four inning, three inning, meaning your long guy, you know, uh, type of philosophy. I, I thought that, but teams don't really seem to go that with the discipline of that. Um, as well, but I always thought that could be fast. I think the Marlins with this AJ Puck, you know, who now, you know, the Marlins without Sandy Alcantara with Tommy John surgery, uh, perhaps moving it one of their starters dealing with some injuries in their rotation, they're considering moving AJ Puck from the bullpen to the rotation. But my thought is he could be a little bit like the Rays did a little bit with Zach Littell last year, who they ended up getting very valuable innings from him. But he started out throwing three, four, five innings. Different type of pitcher, obviously. Uh, but I, I found that the, the Marlins might try to do, Dave, what, what you're talking about, a little bit with A.J. Puck this year. Yeah, Dan, your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I, I, I was not a fan of the, uh, the roster expansion from 25 to 26. I was kind of a purist like that. I'd also like to see a, a 25-man daily limit in, in September. Um, but but if you're going to have 26 and you want to make the most of it, that is, Joe, the sort of thing that, that I would look at. And uh, I actually saw, I remember seeing Littell 
in the minors for the Yankees. He had great numbers, tremendous strikeout to walk, but none of his stuff. I don't think he had an above average pitch. I think I'd probably put him in as, as a long man in the, in the majors, you know, one, three innings, one time through. So I'm not surprised that he had some uh, success doing that. And I, and that's one use of your extra roster spot is to try to piggyback. Um, but, you know, overall predictability from your pitching staff is might be the most valuable thing that you could, you could possibly have, um, you know, uh, some of these, some of these pitchers, some of these hall of fame pitchers who used to throw so many innings, uh, you just, you would just salivate over it as a manager. I think one of the most underrated seasons, um, of, of my lifetime, it, because it was strike shortened in 1994, Greg Maddox threw, you know, they had 25 games. He threw over 200 innings. It's unfathomable today. And, and more recently, uh, Roy Halladay was so reliable. Uh, they could blow out the bullpen the, the day before. And one year, they had Jim Tomei on the team. He didn't see the field. Now, this seems more normal now when everybody has a DH. But this was a National League team without a DH. They had, an entire, they had a guy on the roster who did not see a single inning in the field. Again, pretty much unfathomable, but between Halliday and Oswald and whoever, uh, maybe Cliff Lee at that time, uh, they could afford to use that, that roster spot uh, on a completely dedicated hitter. It just, uh, and you can't, you can't measure that value. Um, uh, to me, wins above replacement, tremendous tool, tremendous framework, um, certainly has its limitations. One example for me is starting pitchers. There's, there's no such thing as a replacement level 200 inning pitcher. Um, it's, it just doesn't exist. Uh, and uh, we mentioned Dontrell Willis earlier, and he was that guy. Our, his last year with the Marlins, he, he struggled to get through five, rarely through six, it felt like, um, and, and, and was closer to replacement level in performance, but he couldn't give those, those innings. Um, uh, innings from your starting pitchers are, it's, it's very difficult to, to measure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is a really good conversation, Dave. We're, we're going to, I know Dan's got to go in a little bit, but uh, you know, any final questions or, you know, where you want to head, you know, what's on your mind? Oh, right I love that. I, I, and this is maybe food for thought to bring when we bring them back next time we brought up basketball too. We had on uh, Albert Breer uh, this morning with Jerry Trupiano with uh, Monday morning quarterback. And I kind of posed this at you, maybe it's food for thought for the next time, but we saw the NFL with the change of style of play, more uh, read option stuff where, where the running back has become a little bit devalued, I guess, where they're not garnering the same amount of money they did in years past or in the 80s and 90s where they were basically bell cows. There was one guy back there. Now there's you know two, three, and four in some cases. Um, I thought out loud to a couple of guests that we've had. I'll, I'll kind of do the same to you, Dan. If, if you have an answer, great. If not, we can use it for next time. But do we see, uh, because of this max velocity craze with pitching, you know, the pitching has changed in terms of that philosophy. Do we potentially see, uh, as the reduction of innings happens, maybe the, the pitcher uh, becoming devalued on the marketplace a little bit like the running back? I mean, I'll, I'll tell you that there are plenty of pitchers whose mechanics um, I, I would not consider a multi-year deal with them in, uh, <clears throat> in the slightest. Um, it's funny how often – There'll be a picture in the, in the with an article of the pitcher. There's so much you can see about a pitcher if it's a still shot right at foot strike, and there's just an incredible number of guys who don't have their arm up. Yeah. Um, uh, Trevor Rogers with the Marlins was one. Uh, you know, he had that great rookie year, and the first time I saw him, I went, I'm, "I I would not count on this guy long term for 
if for no other reason than than that. And um, I feel like Rodon, Carlos Rodon, has a bit of a late arm in that regard too. So a lot of these guys, the velocity, part of it comes from better nutrition, better workout, and everything else. But some comes from kind of some mechanical tricks. Now, uh, if I was in the minors and my choices are do something riskier to make the majors or just be in the minors my whole life, I, darn sure I'd be, I'd be doing the, the more high-risk things. Um, but ultimately if you're the team, if you're thinking about long-terming these guys, um, you, you know, it should, it should be a, a giant red flag. Yeah. No, that's yeah. a good answer. It's, that's, uh, I, I kind of thought about that out loud, um, to a guest way back when, and I've been kind of randomly bringing it up, but, uh, no, I appreciate that answer. It's a good thought. Yeah, like, and, uh, uh, I, w- I was thinking about one winter meetings era, uh, story, if we got a minute to, yeah. to, to leave you with a good one. I don't know if, I don't know if this has been told. This is about, uh, Giancarlo Stanton's contract. We, uh, uh, we actually got that done before the winter meetings. And there was a, uh, a blogger for NBC sports, uh, who responded to a comment from Larry Bidefest who said, we're trying to get it done before the winter meetings. He said, yeah, and I'm sure my Ferrari will, or Lamborghini will arrive before then. And this has always been in the back of my mind. If I ever meet this guy to ask him where his <laughs> Ferrari or his Lamborghini is, because we did, because we did get it done. And it was just about the, the, the simplest $300 million um, negotiation you can imagine. And if I was, if I was one to stretch my stories, I would say that it was done on a bar napkin, which is not quite the truth. Um, but I wonder if David Sampson still has this. It was, um, we had our pre we had our end, our end of season meetings before the GM meetings at the team hotel in New York City, La Meridian, La Parco Meridian. And we were in the lobby bar and the, the, we were just talking and said, what would it take to get Stan long-term? What might he do? And we all agreed it would take $300 million. And David Sampson pulls out, uh, stationary hotel stationary so not quite a bar napkin but it was in the bar it was hotel stationary it's the next closest thing and he writes down the dollars the other premise being was what if we can get them to work for half price the first three years so we can have some payroll room if you remember joe he didn't he didn't get a raise the first year right. um he probably would have gone from like four and a half to nine. yeah 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 he, yeah he, he, he ended up working for the same salary um, and, and there was a lot on the back end and then the salary came down a little bit the last few years when he was going to be in his late thirties. But, um, I believe those dollar figures were exactly what they ended up being. That was the initial draft was 12 years, $300 million. Um, shortly thereafter, uh, there was a, a very small sit down between, uh, our, uh, David, uh, Michael Hill. I think Dan Jennings was there Stanton and his agent in California. There was just the five of them. Uh, I drew up two versions of the contract. One was, let's start a little lower, 12 years, 275-ish million dollars. And I, I forget who had the record at the time. It might have been Votto if you include his, his original deal with the extension. But, and, and Stan was prepared. He knew about all those, all those deals, uh, A-Rod, who holds everybody up there. And uh, so we had that version, and then we had the $300 million version. And I was not there, but as it was told to me, David Sampson just skipped right to the $300 million version put it on their desk. They were quite surprised and um, probably more ready to engage than they, than they expected to be at that point. But the only changes that were made in this $300 million deal were the last year was an option. They picked up that option and rolled it forward one year. So they added essentially one year 
and $25 million. That's how we wound up at 13 years, $325 million. They asked for no trade and they asked for an opt-out. We were opposed to both of those. I, I think the player opt-outs are almost a no-win situation for a team. You mentioned Eduardo Rodriguez, I think, at the, at the top of this podcast, yep. Joe. Um, you know, he signs that deal with the Tigers. You know, did they get value from from that, from the couple of years that they had? Probably not. Yep. And now he walks for, for nothing. Yeah. Um, uh, so we knew we had to give eventually on those two points. And the team policy was we only do one-year deals on – uh, I'm sorry, we only do no trades on one-year deals. Pudge Rodriguez, Javier Vasquez, that might have been it. And uh, David, sharp guy, uh, had a good comeback to that when uh, when somebody like you, Joe, asked him about this. He said, yes, all right, we do them on one-year deals and 13-year, 13-year deals, which I thought was a great line. <laughs> and then they made one other request, uh, uh, something that we something we talked them out of. So we gave on three of the four points and the deal was done. It was as, as I can't even imagine what the Otani... Uh, negotiations are like now. Yeah, I but, don't think they're going like that, but you never know. <laughs> yeah, so if, next time you talk to James Sampson, ask him if he still has the, the stationery with the draft of the Stanton contract. <laughs> One quick, uh, before we let Dan go, just that kind of, when you mentioned almost on the napkin, it reminded me of spring training the year that you guys signed Hanley Ramirez to the extension, and that was a mid-season thing. And I remember we were in spring training in Jupiter at Roger Dean Stadium, and Jeffrey Loria is sitting in the stands, and I go and I sit with Jeffrey, and we're just sitting there, like everyone in the dugout could see us talking. And uh, and Jeffrey is like telling me, I think we could get Hanley done. And I, and he basically was like writing the numbers down of what the deal was. Like whatever it was, six years, you know, 70 million, whatever, whatever that number was at the time, which was the biggest contract until Stanton's a few years later. But uh, it just it's just kind of funny. I know we don't really see that happen much anymore <laughs> right now. Everybody is like hiding away somewhere and they're not, always in, in, in the open, but, uh, but great, great conversation, Dan. Um, uh, we got to get you back in the game when, when time is right. Uh, once again, tell everybody how they, how they could uh, find you and, and, you know, what you're, what you're doing. Is it how they can find me? Yeah. If anyone wanted to, if you're on social, if anyone had a oh, question uh, or whatever, I, if you, uh, if you were like uh, helping out aspiring Harvard oh, types. Sure. I, uh, I am on Facebook. Um, I was one of the first couple thousand people on Facebook. Um, uh, I, I'm I'm on. I'm not really on Twitter, but I have a I have a Twitter handle. I think it's Dan underscore Nofsinger. Um and uh, you can probably find my my bio on my on my firm's my firm's website as well if you're if you're resourceful so. and LinkedIn and they can get you on LinkedIn. All right. Yeah, yeah. Dave, anything last before we get out of here? Yeah, I was one of the last 2,000 on Facebook. I held out until this past January. <laughs> last year, this time, the guys forced me to get on. They're like, you got to get into the world. I was totally off the grid. After ah, I mean, you've, uh, that's a lot of time in your life when, uh, when, you know, when you're out getting that master's and stuff. I, oh, I my guess. gosh. Well, it's, it wasn't a part of coaching when I was coaching. Just as that stuff started coming into play, I exited into a, a new role in sports. Where I didn't have to deal with that with kids. But everybody, as soon as I went on Facebook, I got bombarded. Because my wife put it out there. Look who I finally got on Facebook, and it was just, it was honestly got so overwhelming the first two days because you just get fed all that stuff, the the feeds from everybody. I was like, I can't do this. This is like driving me nuts. But now I love it. It's 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 really helped our podcast out a ton because we get like I said, I, I give that a lot of credit from going from in addition to our wonderful hosts, three thousand to sixty thousand in, in uh, less than a year. So um, sure, got it. You know, you gotta gotta get the word out. Can't uh, can't listen to it if you don't know about it. That's right. That's right. But. Uh, 
no, Joe, great show. Um, you know, 60,000 subscribers or just make sure you give this one five stars, uh, write some nice comments, request Dan to come back. Dan, we'd love to have you back anytime you want. You got an open ticket. Oh, uh, I appreciate that. Come back. And, Had a great time. Yeah. We went by quick, uh, as, as they all do and blackout coffee, Joe, you're, coffee's on you right joe yep. f capital j-o-e f 20 at checkout get as much coffee as you want 20 percent out it's all on joe um and then uh, ted kubiak wonderful book old school if you got a shot to get a stocking stuff for old school and the uh the fielding manual i think it's a great gift for a baseball lover in your family so episode 377 joe can you believe it? we're almost up to 400 yeah yeah we're, we're steamrolling ahead and and again thanks to dan Nofsinger. great job and, and great catching up great holidays to dan to you and your family um dave once again thanks for all you do well we'll be back next week everybody joe for sarah man on second and we are out of here okay.